tonight on Arena. Photographer Trish Morrissey on her retrospective auto-fictions exhibition. And we remember writer and academic Thomas Kilroy. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. The death has been announced of the Irish playwright, novelist and academic Thomas Kilroy. He died at the age of 89 on Thursday of last week and was buried yesterday. He was a prolific playwright and also a founding member of Field Day and noted academic. Thomas Kilroy was born in Kilkenny and was an accomplished hurler, con- ca- captaining the senior team at St. Kiernan's College, which he was at, where he was at school. But his artistic and academic work leave a formidable legacy. 16 stage plays including Double Cross The Death and Resurrection of Mr Roach The Secret Fall of Constance Wilde several adaptations and one novel The Big Chapel which was shortlisted for the Booker Prize. There's also a memoir. Kilroy also had a distinguished academic career teaching first in UCD. He was also Professor of English at University College Galway until 1989 when he left to focus on his writing. I'm joined this evening by writers Frank McGuinness and Declan Hughes to tell us more about Thomas Kilroy. Uh, Frank McGuinness, first of all, he's such a difficult uh, playwright and writer to to characterise uh, Frank, um, partly because of the, the amazing intellect that he had and his love and 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 mastery of theatre. He was an extraordinary master of form, theatrical form. Um, you know, he knew more about writing a play than any of his contemporaries. And my God, there were some contemporaries. But Tom was the great intellect, the great imagination. And uh, he passed on that knowledge so generously not simply as an academic, but also as a writer. He was a very benevolent presence in many writers' lives, uh, especially my own. In, in what ways would you say he, because I, I know Declan Hughes is, is similarly talks about the benevolence of the man. In what ways did he help you, in, or, or was he benevolent to you in those early days, Frank? Well, he took me seriously as a writer. When I was a young fella, I went to Galway to a workshop that Patrick Mason was moderating. 1980, the Arts Council had organised it. And Tom was professor there, and he was one of the main movers behind this workshop, together with Sean McCarthy and Joe Darling. And Tom took every one of us very seriously. Um, You know, if you were writing a play, then he expected you to know what you were um, learning, to know what you were trying to do. You mightn't be able to do it, but you know what you were aiming for. And you were expected to articulate, uh, you know, not just write it spontaneously, but to articulate it as a form what you were aiming for. And he would encourage you and he would help you with the vocabulary of writing. He would help you with the ideas that you were trying to um, disentangle. And there was no better man for um, taking on board what ideas meant in the theatre. I mean, he had a very good idea that the theatre was a serious art form, serious debate, serious political debate, serious aesthetic debate. But he always, always had this kindness about him which allowed, if you like, that generosity and that humour to shine through in them. Yeah, and uh, Declan Hughes, uh, the way Frank is putting it there, really talking about that playwright, W-R-I-G-H-T aspect of, of Thomas Kilroy and how he helped, in, in Frank's case, uh, helped him with that mastery of form. You found a similar type of benevolence and encouragement within, within Thomas Kilroy as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we had done uh, his first, uh, our, our first play uh, as as a theatre company. This Rough is Magic. Rough, rough Magic, yeah. 
yeah, was 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 Talbot's box. And at the time, we were very young, and we were very kind of disillusioned with what we thought was the the, the state of Irish theatre. We knew everything because we were in our early twenties. Um, <laughs> but 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 even within that kind of arrogance, we we saw Tom as this kind of exception, this modern figure, this Enlightenment figure. He was always about the new, about what was now and what was next. And um, so then, subsequently, he reached out to me with uh, a play called Tea and Sex and Shakespeare, which had been given a production at the Abbey. Tom was unhappy with how he had developed it and he wanted to do some further work. So we, we, we worked together and I was, I was very fortunate. I was, I was you know, immensely uh, uh, honoured to uh, be, be uh, the target of his attention. But he was paying attention. He was paying mm. attention and he, and he did that subsequently, I know, to many new companies, to many emerging writers. And I know... Uh, subsequent to that, my uh, emerging career as a playwright, he he came to all the plays. He wrote me letters, um, and and uh, you know he. He, he saw what was going on. And, and it, as you described those two plays, Talbot's Box and T-Section Shakespeare, as Frank McGuinness has said to us earlier, they really are, as most of Tom's plays are, exemplars of a, an innovative use of theatrical form and a clever use of theatrical form. Oh, yeah. Uh, ex- extraordinary. And both about an individual set against this sort of carnival of uh, uh, activities, um, the individual being uh, challenged to give up his individuality, to become pious, whether it's social, political, um, artistic, in any way, to conform to rules. Um, but Tom had that vision. And, 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 and so, and in the second play, in Tea and Sex and Shakespeare, about a writer who's the, basically, the, the the stage is the writer's mind, mm. and passing through it are all of the ideas for plays, but also his images of family, images of infertility, his anxieties around uh, ch- ch- children, about his marriage, and eventually you see this writer's block enacted as a kind of Bunuel-esque surreal carnival. Yeah. I remember him telling me at the time, he said, and this was before I had begun to write, he said, it, this is a play about control and about the problem that happens when a writer tries to uh, control his life the way he controls his writing. And at the time, I, I didn't really understand what he was talking about. Uh, five years later, I, I understood <laughs> all too well. Yeah, and, and of course, the Talbot of Talbot's box being Matt Talbot, people will remember who, who, who remember the play itself. His first play, Frank McGuinness said, uh, The Death and Resurrection of Mr. Roach. Once again, we were talking about an individual, but uh, it was the individual, that character, that lead character, that title character, and his position within Irish society that uh, Thomas Kilroy was really looking at. Explain the background to that play and the controversy that it caused at the time, Frank? It first went on in, uh, I think, the late 60s. I didn't see it because I hadn't come to Dublin until the 70s. Mm. So I saw the revival. And it was a very important play in that it put a homosexual, an open homosexual, at the core of the play. But what was extraordinary about it um, was that it wasn't the strangeness or the oddity of queerness that Kilroy was exploring. What he was exploring was the oddness and queerness of heterosexuality and how the heterosexual males in the play needed the homosexual male to assert their masculinity. They could only be what they were in opposition to him. And it took enormous courage to do that at the time, and it's part of uh, Tom's intellectual bravery as well as everything else, that he was the man to make the mark. Real did it a couple of years later with The Gentle Island, and they are companion pieces. But Tom got there first, and indeed the death and resurrection of Mr. Roach 
really, I think, illuminates what is his core as a playwright, his core interest playwright, and that is the nature of human loneliness. What is solitariness? What is isolation? Mm. And no better man than Tom for articulating that and dramatising it as you say, in so many extraordinary forms. The other thing that is very important within Thomas Kilroy's work, I think, Frank, is is the adaptations, Pirandello, Chekhov, and, and really, it, I suppose it, it shows us how much of a European playwright he was as much as an Irish playwright, Frank. His two careers, the academic and the theatrical, come together in the adaptations. And it's fair to say, I think, that his version of the, of the seagull was absolutely a major landmark in Irish theatre because he dared not merely to translate it, but to transpose the action of the play to the west of Ireland. He found a wonderful metaphor in the emergence of the Celtic twilight, Celtic revival, Lady Gregory, and he did do this extraordinary revealing and exceptionally precise rendering of what Chekhov is doing in that extremely elusive and complex play. He again, he draws his metaphors from theatre, he draws his metaphors from loss, from love, and he spares nobody in it. Quite a harsh play, mm. very I, harsh play. And it sounds so simple when, you know, when, when we hear this idea of transposing it to the fall of the big house uh, in, in the west of Ireland. But it was such a, I mean, it was such a forward-sighted idea at the time to manage to do that. And it explained through Chekhov in some ways, it explained our own culture to us. It did, actually. But again, it was Tom's respect for Chekhov and for the practicalities of Chekhov's craft. He didn't see it as a wash with sentiment or he didn't see it as some easy peasy, um, you know, weepy mm. um, nonsense. He really got to the nitty gritty of the characters, the preciseness of their interactions with each other and the dilemmas that they were facing politically, sexually and sociologically. And of course, and as I say, setting it in the west of Ireland, Declan Hughes, you, you in fact travelled to uh, Tom, Thomas Kilroy in Mayo when you were involved in that uh, revised version of Tea, Sex and Shakespeare in 1988. What, uh, he, he was originally a Kilkenny man. And definitely the, the hurling is important there. But th- that western location seems to have fed into his work uh, later on. Yes. Um, uh, I, 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 Absolutely. I mean, that was a that was a privilege to work with him. Um, he was both, you know, as a man, he was so uh, uh, quietly spoken, but also remarkably well uh, versed in what was going on. He was a metropolitan. He 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 was an internationalist. So, he, but also he focused on mm. on 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 the local uh, and and blending blended the two uh, uh, perfectly. I mean, it was funny also about the ambiguities of being an academic and. Uh, and a writer when um when we did a, a, a when we did the tour of tea and sex in shakespeare um we we were in kinsale and and a lot of his um professor friends showed up and um he he pointed them at them to me and he said they'll be looking for things i didn't put in and they'll blame me when i can't when they can't find them <laughs> sort of, i like the way he was marking his passport you know that he was of the theatrical tribe fundamentally yeah, I, 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 I presume, Frank McGuinness, you may have had similar experiences in that regard, but he managed to, uh, to marry those two careers, as you've done yourself, but to marry that career of academia and the playwriting and indeed the novel writing as well, uh, he managed to keep the two alive. 
Oh, he did definitely, actually. But then that's the kind of mind that he had. You know, he always had to be occupied. Mm. Um, it, was, it was quite... You know, it's a fraught intelligence, Tom's, actually. Because for an easygoing man at times, um, you know, he was hectic in what he wanted from his writing. Um, he was extremely demanding of himself. Uh, I, and, I mean, that play that Declan's describing, T and Section Shakespeare, I actually saw that production. And it really got the chaos that's there and the artistic process. But it also got the confusion and it got also, as I say, the isolation that, that demands the artist. Uh, the, that production got it extraordinarily well. And, and in terms of the the novel, the one, uh, or just the one novel, Frank, but a novel that was Booker shortlisted, it, is, it, is it kind of extraordinary that he didn't write more in the prose form? No, I don't find it that extraordinary. It was it won the Guardian Prize, actually, mm. major prize. It was shortlisted for the Booker in a very good year, and a normal year would have won it, actually. Um, but I think it's really, he does what he wants to do experimentally in the big chapel, and he tells the story that he has to tell in the novel. After that, he went to what, you know, he was destined to, to um, work on, and that's the theatre, I mean, yeah. you know, the blessing and the course. There was no way out of it, actually. Yeah. I mean, and the sheer demands of theatre, um, I think, made it impossible to follow up. Yeah, you also think of his involvement in Field Day and the production of Double Cross in 1986. I mean, even just the idea of Double Cross, Brendan Bracken, the Minister for Information in in Churchill's uh, cabinet, and William Joyce, Lord Ha Ha, played by the same actor. I mean, Mm, the idea of that, Stephen Ray playing it, the idea of that was so clever in and of itself. Only Tom. I mean, there's the mark of the man, actually. Only Kilroy would have, you know, spotted that yeah. connection and exploited it fully. And it's so a spare a play. That's what makes it wonderful. It's what makes it possible to the one actor to play the two parts, that there's not a wasted word. That's what he learned from Chekhov as well, actually. He really knows how to make the line tell. There's no excessive emotion. There's no excessive intellect. There's no cleaving. He simply gets the job done. And it's a big, big statement in terms of European politics. Yeah. Double cross. Finally, yeah. um, to you, Declan Hughes, first of all, uh, you, you credit Thomas Kilroy with giving you the single most helpful advice on playwriting. Do you remember what it was? Oh, I do indeed. I, I, I try and pass it off as my own now, but uh, I always have to give Tom the credit. In fact, he said that when you were working on a play and when you were in the early stages, you were thinking it through, and you were developing your characters and developing your situations. You can take as long as you like, but once you're ready to go, he said, go like hell. Write as fast and as determinedly as you can, because he believed that the energy that you brought to it would communicate itself off the page and onto the sta- and from the stage into the audience, and I, I think that's I think that's very very true and yeah. very wise. And fits into what both of you have been saying about his theatrical imagination and his theatrical energy. Final words to you, Frank McGuinness. How should we remember Thomas Kilroy? He's one of the great playwrights of Ireland, and uh, even more importantly, why don't they do his plays? Why don't they do his plays? Go ahead. Agreed. Agreed. All right. Thank you very much to both of you, Frank McGuinness and Declan Hughes, uh, remembering Thomas Kilroy, whose death has been announced. And on the Drama on One website, you can hear the late Thomas Kilroy Kilroy, alongside Cathy Belton and Joe Taylor perform a dramatisation of Thomas's 
uh, memoir, which is called A Family of Memories. Yes, love, dear Goro, and I'm Yiddish. Trish Morrissey's latest exhibition, Auto Fictions at Photo Museum Ireland, offers a retrospective glimpse into two decades of her thought-provoking work, from an intimate exploration of familial ties in the Front series to the emotional undercurrents of the Psycho Beach collection. Morrissey's work strikes a delicate balance between warmth and detachment. It also focuses on her commitment to represent female experience and tell the often overlooked stories of women. The exhibition is the Irish premiere of several bodies of work, including Morrissey's latest work, uh, latest film, I beg your pardon, a work called Eupnea. And uh, I'm delighted to be joined by Trish Morrissey right now. This this auto-fictions exhibition at Photo Museum Ireland, Trish, being hailed as a major retrospective, when that moment comes along and somebody says, <laughs> let's have a look back at 20 years of your work, what's your, what's your first reaction or your first feeling on that one? <clears throat> That it's a good question. Uh, my first feeling is that it should be a, re- a survey show, <laughs> <laughs> which leaves it a little bit more open. I know a retrospective makes it sound like I'm about to pop my clogs, but yeah. uh, it's fine. It, people understand what it means, I think. Yeah, well, uh, let us let us refer to it as your survey show from this moment <laughs> on. And, you know, in, in some ways, that is what you do. And I'm thinking particularly of um, your route into, uh, into f- photography in, in the first place which kind of came from looking around you and looking at photographs at home in many ways and as a series of an exhibition called Seven Years. You might explain the title of that exhibition and what it refers to. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, It was a collaboration between my sister and I and my sister is seven years older than I. So uh, that's where the, the title came from seven years so uh we made a sort of fake family album where we where we played all the parts so uh we played aunties uncles kids uh and ourselves younger um yeah so so you you came across i think this was in the in the family home like many family homes i suppose in the 70s and 80s a photo album was a a rare thing. There was a box or a, a kind of a oftentimes a little case of photographs just thrown into the corner, and every so often they'd be taken out and fingered and handled and looked at. What what was the situation in your home? I think it was something similar. Oh, absolutely! It was actually I think a wedding cake box. So it was this massive, <laughs> massive, very sturdy two yeah. foot by two foot by two foot thing, um, into which everything was fired from you know my grandparents' wedding picture photographs the right through to snapshots of my parents' grandchildren taken recently. And even the pictures I took of them would all go into that box. And then whoever was looking through it would sift things up to the top. So it was never the same as you looked through. It was mm. always a different arrangement. Yeah, which which in, in and of itself is quite interesting. But I believe it was the discussions around many of those photographs and the... Debate, well, let us say, or downright argument and shouting match that went on as to even who was in the photograph was often a, a case for a, a subject of debate. Well, it wasn't that violent, <laughs> <laughs> but there were, uh, yeah. So I was spending a lot of time with my family. My parents, they'd re- re- my father had recently retired, and I was doing a, a project for my masters. Um, so I was in the house a lot, and. I was really aware that this box, a lot of the photographs, the, their history, their, you know, their, their, the facts of the photos would, would be gone when the parents gone, mm. because a lot of them were, of pe- particularly of the people I didn't know, 
taken before I was born. So uh, the re- this is how the sort of idea of the slippery notion of the family album being a sort of document of history is um, that they would, you know, I was trying to sort of put dates on and, and information on the back of the photograph. And they were very, you know, most of the time they would agree, but sometimes there would be um, a discussion over what was going on. And I would take a consensus and then write that back on the back of the photo. And I was really aware that what I was writing then became the fact of the photo yeah. in, for future viewers. And so that's where the idea of the of the of the fake family album came. Yeah. So it, 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 given that it it was a consensus and and that it may or may not have been exactly right, the idea then was that yourself and your sister, you did you recreate the poses that you saw in the photographs, but you could be Auntie Mary and your your sister could be your granddad or whatever. You, age wasn't important. Gender wasn't important in terms of who you modelled. Uh, exactly. So we weren't, I wasn't really taking, there was a couple of pictures that were direct representations of photographs in the mm. album. Um, there was one with the rabbit, for example, in the garden. That was a direct uh, representation, but it wasn't a transcription. There was no other, there wasn't a second figure in it. It was just right. me as a little kid with a the, with the rabbit. Um, but most of them were taken, the poses were actually taken from generic sort of family album photos rather than directly from my family album. So I was thinking of the times when you photograph, you know, a christening or a birthday or Christmas or a holiday. Yeah. Um, so I was taking like those sort of generic family album moments, but they're all a bit twisted. So they're not like the ones that would have made the album. They're the ones that would have been torn up into little tiny pieces and put in the bin. <laughs> By the person who didn't like the or way they were represented. Exactly. Um, <laughs> But th- th- there's a there's a similarity to that to in, in with between that and the front series of photographs that you did, which involves this does involve in some ways recreating a scene that was in front of your eyes, but you interloping in to to take over the the, the place as subject here rather than the person taking the photograph. Oh yeah, absolutely. So th- this sort of like followed on directly from that series where I was kind of interested in the, the particular genre of family photography, which is the beach family photograph. Mm. So like I was really interested in the sort of English, Irish and Australian way of taking the contents of the house outdoor. The domestic is, you know, comes outdoors and becomes, so the beach little setup becomes like an extension of the family home. Um, and there's like invisible boundaries. You don't really, you know, it's sort of crossing that. So the the, the front um, title is the idea of it's mm. multiple meanings. There's the seafront, the front as in it's fake because they're all fake f- pictures because I'm playing the, a female role in the family, often the mother. Um, and then the, sort of the nerve of me to go and ask if I could be in their family for a moment. Yeah. <laughs> um, While the mother comes out and takes the picture and then each one is titled by the name of the woman who I replaced in the photo. But I must say, from from the few that I've seen, it, it is extraordinary to see you plonked in the middle of this <laughs> photograph, which somehow in my head I feel that you have taken, even though clearly it is the mother in this situation. A collaboration. Yeah. yeah. Has, now, probably with your setup, to be fair. But oh yeah, no, they're taken on a big plate camera, like mm. a massive one that you have to put your head under a cloth to to look at look through the camera and everything's upside down and back to front and you only get a few shots because it's so expensive so yeah it's a, it's and I had to keep coming back and out of the picture and back to sort of change the slides over so it was quite a performance in every way yes absolutely uh, uh, moving on to uh, how would you say the births of your children fed into your yeah, your artistic practice your f- photographic practice because it seems to have basically spawned a, a, a set of works, both the births of both your children. Yes. Um, well, I mean, a lot of my work kind of um, is an intermingling of my own life experience and uh, stories of other women. So giving birth and, you know, mothering and parenting is a very specific experience, mm. which um, 
I wanted to sort of, it's not very, I mean, when I started doing this kind of work, it wasn't very popular, but now there's a lot of work around women and motherhood, which is really refreshing to see. But I was kind of, um, uh, you know, as using using what was available to me at the time. And my son was born, the second child was born with a lot of health difficulties. So we were restricted to the house quite a bit. So that's where the, um, the series, The Failed Realist came from, because it was like a sort of face painting exercise turned around, turned mm. on its head, where I became the... The, the 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 canvas and my daughter aged sort of four was painting my face so that's where that series came because we were we were at the house yeah. a lot because my son was not very well so um and then as my daughter grew up um when she was like uh coming into her uh, um her teenage years and you know sort of uh, coming into being a, a, a woman I was also going through the menopause so it kind of was a real clash of hormones and I was really interested in that notion of the you know the maiden becoming the crone becoming the mother yes. becoming the crone so that's where that series started yeah. and then of course the film that you mentioned earlier was very much related to um the experience of mothering a son who is very ill yeah, or has been I, very I, ill I, I was aware of, will you say the name of the <laughs> film for me because I'm sure I may have mangled it in my pronunciation No you did you did a great job. It is a tricky one, I think. And I, I again, I've googled it. And it's pronounced very differently by different people. But it's it's a it's the medical term eupnea. It's a medical term for regular, normal, un unlaboured breathing pattern mm. that's common common to all mammals. We're doing it now, although I'm probably a little bit breathless because I'm so excited to be talking. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the uh, you know the normal breathing without any stress or illness is what eupnea is. So like, you've probably heard of brachyp brachypnea and tachypnea, which are other sort of patterns, fast breathing, right. slow breathing, and they, they usually indicate a, ty- a type of illness or, you know, something yeah. that's wrong with the body. Um, how quickly or slowly were you breathing <clears throat> when you made your self-portrait with two snails crawling all over your face <laughs> in 2020? Oh, my lockdown work, yeah. Um, yeah, so... Uh, well, I went into a Zen state, actually. Um, I mean, I'd been working with the snails. I know that sounds pathetic and, uh, you know, like very grandiose. I'd been working with the snails for some months at that point. There were little buggers who were, you know, eating my vegetables that I was growing <laughs> and all of that. And then I started to, re- you know, because nothing else to do in lockdown apart from look after children um, and, you know, pay, keep the household uh, in on an even keel. Um, I started to, you know, study them and I put them in a box and I looked, you know, and I... Let it set up a little sort of terrarium for them and I was really fascinated by them and actually grew to really admire them and love them. So it's just this notion, I just thought what would happen if I put them on my face and there's all this stuff about, I mean, it's actually a, fa- you know, you can actually go and pay money at a, a salon to have snails on your face because apparently they munch off all the dead skin. But well, I just thought what would happen, what would happen if I did that and I, I had no idea that they were going to crawl over my eye. I mean, that was a total bonus. <laughs> but was I breathing fast? No, I was basically not breathing at all. Were, <laughs> if you look at the film closely, you can see my pulse is kind of rapidly going in my neck. I, I, it's like I'm, my heart's obviously going. A little I'm, bit of I'm adrenaline at play. <laughs> well, listen, yeah. Tricia, fascinating to speak with you and it is a fascinating body of work and people can go and survey it is what I will Thank tell them much. to do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's Trish Morrissey and Autofiction's 20 Years of Photography and Film is at the Photo Museum of Ireland. Uh, in That's in Dublin and it's there through until the 10th of February of next year. Photomuseumireland.ie Violinist Vladimir Yablokov came to Ireland from his native Bratislava at the age of 19. He started busking to pay off some debts so successful that he soon started staging his own show shows.
Eventually went on to headline sold out performances at the National Concert Hall, INEC, Cork Opera House and Borgosh Energy Theatre, amongst others. All very big venues. But this time last year, Vladimir put on his spectacular Viennese Christmas Gala concert at the Three Arena and he's back to do it again in the same venue. And this is happening this Sunday, the 17th of December. I'm delighted to be joined by Vladimir in studio this evening. I was talking to you before we came to air, Vladimir, about this. I'm looking at the the programme. They just first, came in the post and, <laughs> and, and I thought I'll give you when, when I, you, you pointed me over to the opening page of the inside fold where I see very cute little boy uh, 1989 playing the violin but as he grows through 1997 and into 2000 I see quite a character <laughs> there uh, and a fella I would guess who put a lot of energy into his violin I did indeed but uh, there were times where I didn't really want to and I wanted to do it my own way and I wanted to rebel against everything you know and go against any advice of my parents or whatever I was sort of heading to. And, you know, I came here and I was just headstrong and I had no other choice than go and boss on Grafton Street. I came with not a single word of <laughs> English and 650 euros in my pocket, you know. So I'm proving my parents I can make it. And they said, like, you're mad. Like, you don't know anything about Ireland. You don't know any language. And so what, what are you going to do? And I said, like, I'm going to do anything else but violin. Anything else but violin. Yes. And now violin is the centre yes. of what you're doing here. Yes. And it was my own decision, you know. Yeah. That's, why. <laughs> That's why it's okay. I know the National Concert Hall didn't happen overnight either. Yeah. It, it was no, yes, like, it did. It, you didn't go from Grafton Street to the National Concert Hall the following oh, week. In a way, it did happen that I had to go back busking after the first National first, Concert yeah. Hall to pay off my debts. Yeah, because so. it, it didn't work out maybe the way you wanted it to work exactly. out. Yeah, but however... Here we are now and looking towards this second year in the in the three arena, big venues. So I, I noticed that you very kindly have the violin sitting in front of you. On I'm the, just now, looking at it. Yeah, no, I, I don't want you to just look at it. Uh, why don't you pick the violin up and... Um, I don't give, know if they can hear anything into this radio, but we can try yeah, a little yeah, bit of... Yeah, yeah. Give, give me something of the season, I guess. Something that might give us oh, a sense yeah. of what season we're in. Can we hear it there? Yeah, we're in good nick. It's a bit of uh, Vivaldi's winter there uh, from the Four Seasons. We shouldn't mislead people. That is just you and your violin. We have a couple of more performers. You have a few more with you uh, and we'll have a few more with you. What size of operation are we talking about here? I was sort of proud to say last year that we reached 150 and now I'm not counting anymore. I'm just saying over 150 because we have... 45 in the orchestra, we have over 100 in the choir. <laughs> and then we have, you know, about six pairs of dancers, I think. And I'm not even counting the guest stars. We have 
going through the throughout the show. Yeah, so it's, it's, and it's if it's, I count the crude, you are going over two hundred. Yeah, it's, it's it's a very big it's a very big production, and this has this grew from your days busking on the street. But what about at home? Because I don't know how many of that over one hundred and fifty are members of your family. Quite a few family members there. It has to be said. Good few. Uh, I. As much as I was the first one to rebel against the classical music in the Yabloko family, which mm. is my surname, we used to travel the sort of central Europe as a family ensemble, the Yablokovs. And I was the first one to leave, you know, out of six siblings and two parents, I said like, no, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going, you know, and I left for Ireland. Now, I was followed by my oldest brother who went to study now. He did two masters and all the rest to Germany. Anton left for Switzerland. Your brother uh, Anton was yes. in with us actually oh, yeah, yeah. about was it six or seven months back at yes, this stage. He was now. doing his own uh, mm. string of concerts here as well with his guitar player. That was lovely. And, you know, each of us, our other siblings went to study and sort of moved on. And the family ensemble didn't really exist anymore. But in 2008, I did my first Viennese Christmas with the six performers on stage. Just six. Just six. Uh, the only one from the family who flew in was my sister, Olga, who actually just flew in a couple of hours ago from Vienna. And the following year, I just told her after the concert, I said, like, this feels like I just like to see all the family back. We didn't play in at that stage, you know, for four or five years. And I said, I'm going to make this happen. I will ask everyone. It will probably just cover the flights, you know, and you know, w yeah. whatever we need to have, you know, accommodation and so on. And they all came in in 2009. And since then, until 2019, we met here in Ireland every December. <clears throat> and we start adding more and more musicians on top of the Yabloko family. And it just grew, yeah, you know, yeah. and when we had this little break now, unexpected after 2019, I just said it's the right time to move somewhere farther. Like I cannot just stay in the same place, like doing four concerts in the concert hall and uh, touring the country. I said like, if I want to invest, make the show bigger, you know. So that was the yeah. challenge last year to persuade people to come to Tri Arena. It was much easier this year, I can tell you. And this year what we are doing, which is also very, very unique, I would say we are really designing the show much more to our own unique so look. So there's a, there's a big visual aspect to the show. As that well. is. But well, I, want, I want people to get a sense of kind of the size of the sound. Um, you, you sent in some recordings. I think these are from last year, from the show from yes. last year. Yes. So let's have a little... Uh, and it's not all... It, it's classical music, but it has a twist to it, your own particular style. We do like... it's uh, The siblings, you know, each of them have their own character. You know, Anton is the mad virtuoso. So he always takes something that is... Madly virtuosic. Now, Olga, the piano piano player sister, she's big into romantic piano. So you get a romance there. She's doing part of Tchaikovsky's piano concerto. So, you know, Viennese Christmas doesn't necessarily represent everything that's happening in there. Yeah. Now, Olga's brother. Who, who's the one that does the looking back to those were the days? Who's the one that's the nostalgic one in the family? <laughs> well, it's not that I could say if it's myself. It's you. But uh, <laughs> look, uh, that's just one of the little anchors we may play in Triarina, and, uh, and that's the piece with Anton, you know, because yeah. it's actually nostalgic, but there's a mad virtuosity in it as well, so you can hear that.
There you go. That's it. Uh, you're handing the praise over to your brother Anton there, Vlad. Uh, he's the one that's doing the virtuoso violin playing. That's uh, uh, Vlad, Vladimir Yablokov is with me in studio this evening ahead of their performance at the Three Arena next Sunday afternoon. Viennese Christmas, Vladimir's Viennese Christmas Gala concert. But what I was interested in that is, you know, that's a popular song in many ways, those yes. were the days. But you've taken it, you've given it the kind of the gypsy style of violin, I suppose, that people like Brahms gave us. Yes. So you have a, a classical in way of informing your treatment of popular music and the other way around. It works both ways. That's what we really like doing. And I think, you know, what Brahms did with uh, the Hungarian dances, he just wrote it in a way that it survived throughout the centuries. You know, mm. those were the days was composed way before Mary Hopkins recorded it. And it was sort of, it did have that original gypsy style. So people know it from Mary Hopkins, but we brought it back maybe to its original roots and maybe adding a little bit more of our own. I'm looking at the singers that you have here as well. Tara Iraq, the best of soprano, Gavin Ring, tenor, uh, Sharon Lyon, soprano, and Sean Costello in there as well. A great crossover artist. Sean. Yes. I mean, the vocal side of it is, is very important. Is this a kind of a sing-along? Do you want people to sing along? Oh, we, we have out. people getting involved. Like there yeah. are parts. The first half is more into classical, where it shows all the characters of yeah. the family and so on. Now, second half, I won't actually give it all away because mm. we have an absolutely amazing opening of the second half with the pr production-wise as well. But then, as we go on, you know, I have my kids coming in doing the medley from Sound of Music. Uh, so it's Anna and Nina. They did their first performance ever in Tree Arena, on stage there in front of 5,000 people last year. And they did the whole Hippopotamus for Christmas at the age of four and six. Wow. And it was only afterwards I was looking back at the cameras, at the production details, when I seen the eyes just went shining on the four years old one because she realized where she was. She didn't realize all the people. What, what are you going to do when they do to you what you did to your parents in your te <laughs> in their teenage years? And say, I, I, That's I, I, it, I'm giving won't. up on this, Dad. Well... You know, the first thing, I know my parents meant it really well and they were right in the end, but I'm giving choice to my kids to what they want to do. I was asked about whether I want to play violin once and guess what age I was? Uh, I'd say very young. Five. <laughs> and since then, when I was 14, it was automatic. I'm going yeah. to a conservatory of music. You know, it was all good and I, I really get it, but I really took, and I, I am musician in heart and I'm also in a way, you know, I want to move forward. I'm promoter as well, I could say. Yeah, and obviously the the big shows are, are what you want to what you want to. Uh, and develop. I want to produce, yes, yeah. and I want to look at the details. There was one song that you played at last year's concert. I don't want to say what it was, but you're going to play it again this year. It will take on a whole new meaning, and we're going to do a little bit of a mix here. You're going to start playing beautiful melody live, and then it will fade across into as it was sung last year. I cannot wait to hear what it will sound like this year. There won't be a dry eye in the house, but let us let us hear that beautiful melody to start off. Vlad. Something we just love and we had it in the programme, by the way, for years. Yes, it's been it's there not for... only now, but now it has completely different meaning. Yeah, I agree.
there will be singing for sure when that happens in the three arena. Vladimir Lebrikov, thank you so much for coming into us this evening, Vlad. And Vladimir's Viennese Christmas Gala concert takes place at the three arena this Sunday, 17th of December. You'll get full information and booking on vladimirmusic.com and tickets on ticketmaster.ie. Thank Thanks, you Vlad. so much. Just a few left. We'll see you then. Well, now the Irish push for global domination of screen acting continued today. Of the six Golden Globe nominations for lead actor in a motion picture, three are Irish. Killian Murphy in Oppenheimer, Barry Keoghan in Saltburn and Andrew Scott for his starring role in All of Us Strangers. The awards take place on the 7th of January. We certainly will be watching with interest on that one. Something for us to look forward to. But right now, let us stay in the world of cinema, but look back. Directed by Sidney Lumet, Serpico uh, starred Al Pacino and the title role, Undercover Cop Who Can't Be Corrupted, who in fact takes on corruption as he sees it around him in the NYPD. The tagline to the film, which t- turned 50 last week, is many of his fellow officers considered him the most dangerous man alive an honest cop. And this is based on a true story. Paul Whittington has been watching it again for us and he's with me in, in studio uh, right now. We're in the 1970s, obviously, here. And if you think we about... We are so in the 1970s. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Mean yeah. Streets, The Two yep. Godfathers. So bring us into the, the cinema that we were in when Serpico came out, Paul. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, <clears throat> I mean, Serpico is kind of an unusual piece of cinema, but but there was a flavour, if you, if you think of... Um, uh, films from the early 70s that like the first one that Pacino was ever in Panic in Needle Park and there was Midnight Cowboy there was a kind of middle class fascination with what was happening mm. to big cities particularly New York but also others and how this like graffiti had happened in the late 60s there was a kind of urban decay going on people didn't really know why and so people were kind of fascinated by that but this film uh, it, it, it almost has a kind of reportage aspect to it because yeah. it was so near in time to the story that it depicts. Yeah, um, tell us about that that real life story, the real life yeah. Frank Serpico. Who was he? Frank Serpico was the son of first generation Italian Americans and he joined the NYPD in 1960 and he wanted to be a cop since he was a kid. When he was a kid on the street, the this kind of the, the kids that parted and these two big men in blue came along and thought, I want to be one of them. And he was very disillusioned very quickly because at his precinct, practically everybody was on the take. They go to a diner in the film and the guy's giving them free sandwiches with bad meat because they look after his parking tickets and he can't get over this and everybody tells him Frank you know you're a pain in the ass get on with it but he can't he can't ignore it so it's all about how he he ultimately decides that he has to do something about it which is an incredibly brave decision um, Pacino is, is, is plays the plays Serpico yeah. here. Did he jump at the role or not? No, he didn't. He was kind of avoiding it. No, he didn't. Well, things had changed for him because he had been discovered by the producer of this, actually, uh, Martin Bergman, in, in an off-Broadway play uh, in the late 60s. And then he did Panic in Needle Park and then The Godfather. And then oh, suddenly right. everybody wanted him and everything. Mm. No, Paramount didn't want him for The Godfather because he was too he was too ethnic looking, too Italian looking for The Godfather. Figure that out. But then <laughs> w- w- when he first heard about this, he thought, I don't know, you know, do I want to do it? Um, and then he met the real Frank Serpico and that convinced him. Um, and he, 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 he realised there was a way into this role. Interesting, though, when you think of it, to, to be coming from the kind of the very crooked world of The Godfather mm. into being 
the yeah. good cop, the honest cop. Yeah, and I mean, I suppose in a way there's there's an analogy because in The Godfather, he's the, he's the good one in the family. He's going mm-hmm. to be Joe College and he's not going to be, you well, know, he become... He thinks he's going to be, isn't yeah, he? And, yeah, and then he realises he's just like his father. But in yeah. this, he is, I mean, there are ways in which it's implied in the film that Frank Serpico is kind of a pain in the ass because he, he's kind of righteous, um, but of course he's right. And um, Pacino is, he's, a, I, I hadn't seen it for years and I watched it on Saturday night. And he's exceptional in it. You can't, when you think of all the sort of hoo-ha stuff that was going to come later and the sort of fruitiness that happened in middle age, you can never see him acting. There are some other actors in the film who are okay actors and you can see them acting. You can't see him acting. Yeah. He's still at certain points. He's incredibly good in it. Incredibly it, intense. Yeah, we have we have a clip here and it should be, be there is serious language Bad towards language the end of this clip. clip. Yeah, this yeah. I don't think you can get a clean clip no. within it. There's also pretty violent gun shooting from, from the very yeah. top here. But it gives you a sense, it, you talked about Reportage. That's, this sounds like a documentary almost as yeah. much as it sounds like a feature film. Here it is. Firing first of all and then bad language. Very interesting. As, as I said, that's um, uh, Al Pacino in a scene yeah. there from uh, Serpico, uh, 50 years old last week. Paul Whittington with me in studio talking about it. Even as as we're listening to that, mm. you, you, you actually think he's truly panicked there. I mean, that's extraordinary acting because it you, does sound this documentary feel. Y- yeah, it is. And the scene is really well done. Um, and Sidney Lumet was, was a great choice for this film. He, he had learned his trade in television where efficiency is was king, 50s mm. television shows. And then he did... Um, 12 Angry Men and he would go on to do other films with uh, with um, Pacino like um, uh, Dog Day Afternoon and so forth but but he, he it was real no nonsense like if you look at Scorsese's films shot around a similar time Mean Streets is the same year as this um, there's a kind of romance to the sleaziness of the New York in Taxi Driver and Mean Streets yeah. there's no romance in this he, he had they had to go around for the 60s scenes graffiti hadn't been invented in the early 1960s what a wonderful time that must have been so they had to go looking for areas that didn't have graffiti to shoot those scenes and they had to shoot winter and summer they had all these and they had to do it in a, in a month and a half and he did it brilliantly and it has this urgency about it all the time and it's the whole thing is held together by uh, Pacino's performance So a, a much more gritty type of New York that is presented yeah. here I guess that's a, a true reflection of the type of police brutality that we were dealing with I mean how how bad was it and how how unusual was the straight cop? Well, th- this film was criticised afterwards by some uh, apparently honest cops and to which the answer was, well, where were you? But I think that the, the, it was the graph thing was the problem and you could see the consequences of that in terms of what was ha- what was happening in mm. the poorer parts of New York. Um, it was simply that the, uh, it was protection money for, for drug rackets, for prostitution rackets and everybody got a cut. And time and again in the film, he's offered money and he says, no, I'm not, I'm not going to take it, I'm not going to take it. And they get more and more annoyed with him and eventually realise that he's in danger. Every precinct he 
goes to is worse than the last. He's sent to the Bronx to a drug squad in the end and you think, well, you know, he's in trouble here. And of course, the two years before this film was made, the real Frank Serpico was shot in the face in dubious circumstances. F. Murray Abraham turns up in this film. You know you're in the 70s playing this dodgy cop. And they basically, the implication mm. is they stood back at this drug bust and he was shot in the face and he survived and then he, he was involved in this uh, uh, public tribunal which actually did make a difference in the end. If um, The Godfather gives us opera <laughs> in, yeah. around, in and around. No opera in this. There's no opera. But well, no, there Serpico, is opera. Sorry, there is opera. Well, Serpico is a big yeah. fan of the ballet. He, he is. He is. That's the interesting thing I'd forgotten about it is that he, he was kind of this kind of counter counterculture person. Mm. Like he went playing clothes, but he liked it. He had as a pat a moustache and the long hair. One of his girlfriends is a ballet dancer and he does listen to Italian opera out in his backyard to attract other girlfriends. But but the the the, the pressure of of uh, of all of it starts to get to him and he can't maintain a relationship and his life is starting to come apart and he become, becomes quite paranoid actually as you would does the film stand up you you say you're watching it watching it does it does it hold 50 years on it stands up extremely well because Sidney Lumet directed it and because there, there's not really a spare moment in it and it's a fascinating insight into that place mm. and time in New York which is now quite sanitized and I don't know if Al Pacino has ever been quite as completely in a performance as he is in this film wow so you put mm. this as possibly one of oh, it's one, brilliant one performance, of his best yeah. Yeah. okay that's uh, Paul Huntington speaking to us about Sidney Lumet's Serpico which turned 50 last week and indeed you may have heard it uh, on the Newark 30 on the Cork born actor and television presenter Frank Toomey has died his family have confirmed TV personality best known as a presenter on Bosco in which he appeared throughout the show's original 1980s run he appeared on the RT comedy shows Bull Island on which he did impressions of politicians including Mary O'Rourke Willie O'Dea David Tremble and indeed he was also on Nighthawks the stage veteran also had a long time stint as a dame of the Everyman Theatre annual Christmas pantomime in Cork in recent years. He featured on the RT player advice show Agony OAPs alongside retired footballer Pat Spillane and retired politician Mary O'Rourke. And that is Frank Toomey whose death was announced today and the everyman in theatre in Cork said Toomey was a true Cork legend. I'd say their um, panto this year will certainly have a nod towards Frank Toomey, I would imagine. That is our lot for this Monday evening here on Arena. Paul Shields and Liam Murphy researched. Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator. Ashton Grufferty was on sound this evening. And tonight's programme was produced by Sinead Egan. I will talk to you once again tomorrow night, 7 o'clock, here on RTE Radio 1. And we will hand over to Cork and a suitable place for us to go. John Creedon will be with you after the news at 8 o'clock.